Hello guys, welcome to uh, My Steps to Sobriety, the YouTube channel and the podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is an exciting day. I have got a special guest uh, on the program here, uh, Stuart Watson. He is a truth seeker in the truest word uh, or meaning of the word. He uh, is... He has got his own special journey that he will share with us here today. And I'm very, very proud to have him on the show. So welcome to you, Stuart. Please say hello to the audience. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, Stefan, thank you. I appreciate you and I appreciate your journey and I identify with your journey. And they say, when we speak from the language of the heart, we connect, even though you're in tomorrow, you're, you're not in my today. It's hard to be in the moment. You're in tomorrow. So it seems like tomorrow is treating us well. So uh, it's good to speak to you <laughs> half a world away. I am in uh, the U.S., in the southeastern U.S., uh, where it's the day before your day. We're 16 hours behind you. Uh, we look to you there for leadership. <laughs> we look to you uh, for comfort. Um, but my name is Stuart Watson. And uh, uh, by, uh, by birth, I was taken away from my birth mother on day one and adopted in a completely different family. Um, so I was a seeker for a long time to find out what my what, who my people were, who was my family, what's my genetic history, what's, who's, who's my tribe, who's my, who's my group, where did I come from, you know? And then I, was, I also, by profession for uh, 35 years and more now, have been an investigative reporter. And so that's what I did to earn a paycheck, is I looked for, you know, truth, you know? And I looked through documents and databases and research and sources to try to determine, you know, what the truth was. And then as a person in recovery for over 25 years, almost 27, I looked for the truth of who I am. And I found that I was living a kind of double life or false life. And in one life, I was busy killing myself. And... Uh, the substance I used, I didn't use razor blades to kill myself. I didn't jump in front of cars. You know, I was using what they call slow motion suicide. And that is to pick up a bottle of vodka or a bottle of beer or uh, a bottle of scotch, rotgut scotch. I, I didn't have the money for single malt scotch. I didn't have the money for that. And I would slowly kill myself. Um, oh. Please, so, I, we have been there. That, that is our, our story, <laughs> isn't it? It is. I, I didn't have the top shelf. It didn't have the 25-year-old, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and it was a long, slow, uh, it was a long, slow process. And then the, the end of the story is, is that I found through my own research that my biological father had drank himself to death and that my I had two full-blood siblings with the same father and the same mother, and that even though they were raised in a completely different home, all three of us became alcoholics, and all three of us in our various ways were using substances um, to, slowly, to slowly wear ourselves down. 
we responded to shame and to trauma by slowly killing ourselves. And we each in our own way and in our own time found our own path out of that. So, Which is beautiful. I mean, you've, you've given me every single soundbite I could possibly think yeah. about. And my mind is already trying to load and it's going all the all the the beautiful the beautiful tracks i want to explore with you this could be a longer interview very much so but i mean you 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 wouldn't have when you were six years old and were playing with with soldiers or or trying to do things whatever you did um you you were not planning to be an alcoholic so how did your your journey into alcohol actually start when was the first time you drank can you remember so my dad, who was not my father, my dad who raised me, he always said to me, if you never drink, you'll never be an alcoholic. And I think he might have known something about the secret of my genetic history, about my biological father, because um, sure enough, I did become an alcoholic. What happened was at the age of 15, which is a little bit late, I went to a uh, a neighboring town, it had about 100,000 people. We only had about 50,000, so it was the big city. And then some older boys lied about their age and they got a pint of vodka. And all I can tell you is, I mixed that vodka with orange juice in a hotel room and uh, with the ice from the machine down the hall and the magic happened, is that the lights came on and all of a sudden I saw technicolor when it had just been black and white and and i was like this is magical this is absolutely what i've been looking for mm -hmm. and so uh i learned that about 80 percent of the population never has that experience that they just could take it or leave it it doesn't have that kind of magical experience to them they can't tell you who was there when they had their first drink they can't tell you, you know, what the feeling was. They can't tell you the exact place or the time. Not me. For me, it was absolutely magical. And the lights came on and I had another dimension. And I was on my way, I believe, to becoming an alcoholic because I had a completely different experience from about 80 to 90% of the population. And you're so right, Stuart. You're so right. Um, it is... Uh, as alcoholics, we are super responders to uh, with our our neurochemicals, and we get a high that is beautiful. As you say, someone is switching the lights on, and and whilst down the road you typically drink to no longer feel the sadness and the side effects uh, of your alcoholism, um, but it is. Uh, it's still still late in my in my disease. I actually had the same experience as you. I would come home after a 12, 16 hour workday, uh, completely exhausted. And then two glasses of wine later, suddenly the shoulders relax and a kind of calmness comes over you. And it was beautiful, beautiful. Let's bring it on. Let's work another eight hours. Uh, needless to say, you can't you can't do that forever, and you pay the price sooner rather than later. Um, but I had to learn that the hard way again and again. But that's another story. But yes, I so understand where where you are coming from. We are 
yeah, we are Superman, just in all in all in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it is it is what it is. So here you are, and that what you have just described to me is a typical genetical predisposition, isn't it? It is. So there you were, but at that time you didn't realize that you had that superpower, so to speak. Um, you you enjoyed the alcohol and you made the best out of it. You lost your inhibitions. You got on with life. You probably had some good times. What were the good times? Well, the the great myth or the great delusion I had for the next 20 years was that I was going to take the same substance and that it would have the same effect. You know from being in healthcare and around medicine that you think that you can predict um, that, oh, well, if an aspirin worked last week and an aspirin works next week, that if I have a headache, I can just continue to take aspirin and it'll continue to have the same you know, healthy result. But that was not the case with me at all. Uh, I don't like dwelling on the euphoria because it's kind of like saying, if I put on the same music, that I had when I was 15, that I'll be able to dance like I did when I was 15. Or if I, um, if I just, if you hand me a basketball, I'll be able to dribble the same way I did when I was 15. I can't. And so this exact same substance, vodka, which was so magical when I was 15, by the time I was 35, it was toxic, it was deadly, it was killing me. And it was having a, a terrible effect. And I was consuming it in greater and greater and greater amounts to try to get the original results. There's this old cliche that insanity is doing the exact same thing and then expecting a different result. I'm like, no, 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 that's not it. I was doing the exact same thing, expecting the original results. I expected to drink my way back to age 15. Oh, and yeah. for 20 years, I chased the original high and it never came back. Instead, it just got dark and isolated and alone. And it became, it went from social, I was the life of the party, I could talk to the girls, I could dance. I enjoyed the music, I connected with you, we were best buddies at the bar. It went from social to non-social. I don't care if you're there or not. If you'll buy me a drink, I'm glad you're there, but I could take you a leave. To anti-social, leave me alone. You're the problem. I'm not the problem, you're the problem. You just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. <laughs> that, is a, that is quite an art to take the same substance and have a completely different reaction at age 35 than you had at age 15. So I believe alcohol went from benign, even beneficial, to mm, probably not a good idea, to potentially deadly. All over the course, same body, same brain, same biochemistry. It was just that I had advanced deeper and deeper into whether you want to call it disorder or disease, 
It is a biochemical reaction to the mm -hmm. same substance, and it differed over the course over the course of my life. Wow, you you put it so beautifully in words. You're not just a seeker; you're a wordsmith. <laughs> I have to give you that. It's beautiful, beautiful. You. And you, you spelled it out in a nutshell. That is the typical arc uh, that we alcoholics go through. And the question is just, where does that story end? And for many people, unfortunately, uh, well, essentially, there are only three outcomes. is either jail, death, or recovery. And there's the saying, well, every serious alcoholic will stop drinking at one day. It's just nice if they're still alive when they do. So I think we two are lucky there. And... You obviously were in this dark place. We are now fast forwarding to your about 35, round about there. What happened then that made you take a different stance? What happened? What, what changed you? Because there must be one point in your life where you think, well, actually, enough is enough. It was a process. It was not a, a sudden thing. Now, the, the stopping of the drinking was a sudden thing, but I gradually began to realize that this was killing me. Um, I would have the same experience day after day after day. I had three phases, and I existed 90% of my life in one of these three phases. Drunk, passed out, hungover. Drunk, <laughs> passed out, hungover, drunk, passed out, hungover, drunk, passed out, hungover. And they, one fed into the other, and there was a kind of a momentum. And so it was like being on a ride, like a merry-go-round that goes around and around and around. And I enjoyed the ride, and I was riding the ponies, and they were going up and down, and I liked the lights and the music. And then I got tired of it. And I said, I want to get off the ride. But the ride just kept going. And then I, more and more, I said, I really, I really, I want, I, I am, I'm going to stop this. But the ride just kept right on going. And I suddenly realized I am stuck on this ride. And I used to enjoy the lights and I enjoyed the motion. And I wanted to be on the ride, but I could not say when the ride would stop. And suddenly... The way they say it here, uh, you may have heard this phrase, um, it's from indigenous people in, in the US. They said, first the man takes the drink, mm. then the drink takes the drink. It has its own momentum. Mm. Then the drink takes the man. So That's we go through these phases mm. and for a long time we have the alcohol has its own momentum. It's taken over and it's running the show. But by the time I realized that I really, really need to put this down for my wife, for my baby girls, for myself, for my own health, for my work, for my livelihood, for my family, for everything, the reason I have everything to lose in this, by that point, it has receded to the point to where I no longer control it. It controls me, it runs the show. And so um, this takes place 
long before I even realized it. This took place before I was even aware of it. And so then by the time I'm ready to exert some willpower and really put it down and not just cut back, but to leave it alone entirely, you know, to be completely abstinent, I'm, I'm already trapped. I have no control over this. And I, and I just, I would just, I would have little capillaries break in my cheeks. I would be sick and nauseous in the morning. You know, I would have what I called, forgive me, but the, the shits, the sweats, and the shakes. You know, I would wake up and my hands would shake, and I would want to vomit. Some days I would vomit uh, again and again, and it, it would happen the same way. I was punished by this, and yet, and I knew it would punish me, and yet I kept on doing the same thing over and over again. There was this pattern in which I said, no, no. This time I'll only have two beers or three beers or six beers, or I'll only drink on the weekend, or oh, I'll, yeah. only, or oh, I'll yeah. take a break, I'll take it easy for a while. I'll just, I won't drink vodka anymore. I'll just drink beer. It'll be okay. It's organic, you know. Uh, it comes, uh, Mother Nature made this for me. That's this a, wine. It's good for you. It has vitamins. All yes, what the alcohol industry tells us. Yeah, right. And, and red wine, you know, it's good for you. It'll yeah. keep the cancer away. It'll help your heart. You know, it stimulates your heart. You're and right. uh, never happened. And so <laughs> I, was, I was becoming more and more, um, you know, just kind of dis despairing and frustrated that I guess I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just a chronic screw up, you know, that I, I don't have the willpower you know, the determination, the courage, you know, the manliness. Uh, to, you know, you said yourself, the balls. I don't have the balls to deal with this. I should, you know, get a hold of myself, get a grip. This should be up to me. This is my problem. I should be able to fix it. And uh, it was a very, very bad way to live. It was not, it was a way in which I, you know, I really was just like, exhausted i was just like this this i'm sick and tired of being sick and tired i guess this is just the way it goes for the next 10 20 40 mm -hmm. 60 years mm -hmm. i'm just going to be like this you know i'm stuck mm -hmm. so true so true i recognize myself in so many of the words you just said it is uh we both had uh, a very similar experience for me I was lucky one day because my wife uh, did an intervention and she tried many times before to, to convince me, but the alcohol was always stronger. There's little doubt about that. But then one day she had behind my back organized a stint in rehab. So on a Tuesday morning, I had the last hangover and by Friday, I was admitted to a private hospital up in Auckland here, Capri Hospital. And that was the start, really, of my journey to becoming the man that I am today. And it was, it was a journey where the 12 steps uh, were very important for me, uh, not in a religious way whatsoever, but in, in, a, in a more in a, in a practical way. And I certainly, I look back and see it as, as the low point and yet one of the most beautiful moments in my life. How was it for you? I mean, did you go into rehab 
or did you get a mentor or did you white knuckle it? How, how was the journey for you? Um, well, uh, you'll appreciate this story. Um, I had known people who were in recovery um, because I didn't work in healthcare. I worked in, in the media. I worked in uh, television news. When and, was that about? Which time frame? Which year are we talking about now? I worked in television news from a lot of years drinking, but I started in 1983 yeah. and I worked in television news until 2015. Oh, you're so, a busy boy. But run so I worked for 32 years, but yeah. I got sober, if you're asking when yeah. I got sober, it was in 1993. Oh, goodness. I mean, this was still, this was still a very wet period, um, <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, please, yes. everyone was drinking. It was still yeah. normal. All our yeah. heroes in the films from Bruce Willis to, yeah. to everyone was getting pissed. Mel Gibson yeah. in Lethal Weapon, the very first yeah. thing he gets up in the morning, has a cigarette and a beer, takes a piss. Yeah. And, you know, it was, that was our, our world. These were our heroes. So yeah. here you are, and you suddenly become this, this strange guy who doesn't drink. How bizarre. Right. And certain cultures and businesses within the culture, certain subcultures uh, in the US, and also the same thing in New Zealand, Australia, you know, uh, Ireland, England, in the English-speaking world, mm -hmm. there are cultures in which alcohol is front and center. You know, France, Germany, Absolutely. you know, certainly in Australia. I don't know about New Zealand, mm -hmm. but um, beer is, is center to the culture. It's right there, you know, it's mother's milk, you know. <laughs> I come from Germany, so for us, uh, beer and wine is part and parcel of your life. Uh, it certainly was in the 80s. Uh, it was so normal. It was normal when you had builders coming to your house. You would make sure that there is a crate of beer there so that they have got some sustenance during the day. How bizarre right. is that when you think about yeah. it? I mean, these were, these were the 80s, 90s. Uh, I very much uh, remember times. Every single village in the, in the autumn would have a wine festival. And there was basically, you were constantly under the influence. And uh, as, as, I mean, I remember going up to, to a place in the more northern part of Germany, and I went out with some girls. And I was at that stage still relatively, relatively early in my journey. I hadn't built up the, the, the stamina yet in drinking. And there were these girls and drinking this lethal mix of, uh, of uh, a strong beer. And mm -hmm. they, they would have some punction there. So you get some, mm -hmm. some oranges and, and, and uh, uh, strawberries, it was. Strawberries into the strong beer. And it was sweet and it was actually quite pleasant. And these girls were drinking it like milk. Uh, and I had four of them and I was staggering. And it just gives you an yeah. idea. I mean, that was already, and these girls were standing there talking normal whilst I slurred my yeah. speech. So right. it shows you a little bit how common in my culture uh, the alcohol was. And please, within all means, then certain, certain professions, doctors, nurses, uh, mm -hmm. first aid responders, emergency mm -hmm. services, heavy drinking, man. Um, yeah. And no doubt, in your case, constantly being on the ball, constantly being out there, having this persona there that is constantly on the screen or out there, 
of course you want to let your hair down afterwards and that's where the alcohol must have come in for you wasn't it right and before television and even before radio uh, newspaper reporters it's always been a hard drinking culture you know reporting journalism it's always been a drinking culture and furthermore um, alcohol in the culture serves to bond us one mm -hmm. to another so there are certain businesses and certain professions in which in order for me to trust you we're going to go out and we're going to get drunk together right <laughs> and we're going to embarrass ourselves in front of each other yep. and so it's it's this mutually assured destruction you're not going to talk about how pissed i was because yeah. i'm i'm you you and i were just as pissed and we were both embarrassed ourselves and so we're we've got something on each other right we've bonded over this and so by the same token yeah. i'm not going to do business with you i'm not giving you the contract unless we go out and perform this ritual which let's be frank you know there's a female ritual and then there's male ritual bonding and it's like i don't i'm not sure i trust this guy yep. um and there have been great uh, folk heroes in the United States who said that. They said, I'm not sure I trust someone who does not drink. You know, because just a little bit too perfect. You know, we need to go out and, and really show each other how ugly we can be uh, in order for us to trust one another. And so it can be a place where once you get clean and sober that people don't, they kind of look at you, are you, are you, trying to say you're better than i am mm. you're trying to um you'll find people that it's almost like a person who becomes a vegan or a vegetarian you know people will start saying oh you're lecturing me uh well i i suppose i drink a lot too and like i'm not judging you at all i'm not saying anything about you i'm simply saying for me i can't drink i'm not judging you at all but the, there's a strong cultural bias um, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to Mexico uh, to report on some of the um, immigrants and the immigration patterns. And this was, oh, 14 years ago. So we're in the Sonoran Desert. And we go to this village, which is a jumping off point. It was called Altar, A-L-T-A-R, Altar, the jumping off point hmm. for the United States. And so this is where the migrants meet and they meet the coyotes who are going to smuggle them across the border in vans or guide them walking miles and miles through the desert. So we meet the parish priest as journalists, right? Because he sees these migrants, he blesses them. He's accustomed to seeing this flow of immigration through his town. Well, the first thing the parish priest does is he says, we make our own tequila. We make our own tequila, we're very proud of it. So he offers me as a reporter, the tequila, and he's a little bit offended when I say, no, no, I have to think of the word or ask, como se dice, how do you say uh, alcoholic? You know, how do you say alcoholic? I cannot drink this. And he, as a priest, he understands this, he respects it, but that's an example of how in the culture and the everyday part of doing your job, you know, people expect you to bond with them over what they consider to be benign. Um, whereas if you told them um, I'm lactose intolerant or I have a violent, violent reaction to tomato juice, you know, they would understand that. They would understand that instantly. 
you know, whereas <laughs> with mm -hmm. the alcohol, they don't understand. Now, what's wrong with you? Do you have some sort of moral depravity that you can't have a simple beer with me? Come on, it's a beer. You know, uh, what's the big deal about that? There's still a strong bias to treat it differently than you would treat tomato juice or milk or anything else, which people can have, you know, you, you understand as a healthcare professional, their throats can close up. They can have violent reactions because they're allergic to something. Well, my body and my brain do not process alcohol the way 80 to 90% of the population does. Mm. You're so true, so correct. I've been in similar situations and it is, it is a hard call not to drink uh, in such situations. Uh, luckily, uh, it, it didn't have, it didn't put me into a bad place uh, in, in the eyes of others. They understood, uh, luckily here at least, or in, in the circles in which I, I move, uh, there, there is not such a strong, it's not prejudice, such a, such a strong attitude you have mm -hmm. to drink, but it's still there. It's very much there. So I 100% understand where you are, uh, where you were, what you're describing. Now, intriguing, intriguing. So you were in a, in a place where you actually had learned that, no, enough is enough. You changed your life. But then one day you got more interested in a different aspect of, of the alcohol. You started researching and seeking the truth as far as your own biological family was concerned. What started that journey? How did that go? Um, if you don't mind, I want to say one other thing about Good. you and I. And, Good. Um, what happened was, um, I, I think I didn't, I wasn't clear. Um, what happened was, I met someone who was involved in 12-step recovery. Uh -huh. Now, right. not everyone does 12-step recovery, and I respect those who don't. But whether you go to group therapy, whether you go to rehab, whether you meet a small group of friends at a church or at a religious institution, or whether you um, meet people in 12-step recovery, or whether you meet fellow veterans or fellow healthcare workers, people who are in your, your group, you know, your small tribe, um, every one of those pathways out of addiction and into recovery involves community. And I think that you and I talking, Stefan, you and I right now, we are a community. For purposes of this conversation, we are a community. And so you and I, you might have gone to rehab and had an intervention, whereas I bumped into a friend and said, please, won't you help me? Mm. But that one-on-one -on -one interaction, that vulnerability of you didn't say, you're not sending me off there. I don't have the problem. You're, you were ready. You were receptive. You were open to creating a new community. Uh, you were able to say, my wife is doing this because she's concerned about my health. She's not just lecturing or being, this is in my own best interest mm. to go to this hospital, to go to this rehabilitation facility. You know, that this isn't some kind of shaming that's going on. 
This is in my own, my life is at stake here. Um, my biological father, I'll tell you how I found out, I'll answer your question, but my biological father died of this disease. And when you mentioned the phrase that you mentioned earlier, that if you keep drinking, all you have to look forward to are uh, jails or prisons, to forced institutionalization because someone orders you into a rehabilitation mm -hmm. or a detox, or, or death, that those are your only options other than, uh, I thought people made that up. I thought they were trying to scare me into stop drinking, that it was that my wife's way of nagging me or somebody's, somebody was just trying to make me feel bad. They were trying to be righteous or puritanical and saying, you really shouldn't be doing that. Like they were lecturing me about what I ate or how much salt I put on my food or how much sugar I consumed or how much candy or ice cream or cookies. I thought they were being, you know, puritanical about it. And um, instead what they were, was is genuinely concerned about me. And I thought the jails, institutions or death was, I thought it was just a neat rule I thought it was a rhetorical device to scare me into their little, into their little cult or their little pyramid scheme or whatever their little marketing scheme was. I thought that they were just playing a little game with me. And then what happened was I was 10 years sober. So I had been in recovery. I'd been in 12-step recovery. I had sponsored men. I had mentored them. I went to meetings. I had been part of a home group. I had been part of this culture. I had I could recite the 12 steps to you. I understood what the basics of everything were. But in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, if my mother died, I could really drink and no one would blame me. If I went bankrupt, then I could really drink. You know, nobody would blame me then. You know, if things really went bad, if I got divorced, then I, then I could really drink. If I lost my job, I could drink. If I had a health crisis, then I could drink. I had all these, if this, nobody would blame me for drinking because that's just a response to circumstances. And then I was so curious about my biological history that I used my own investigative reporting skills as a journalist, my own research skills, to find out who my biological father was. Now this was before DNA, you couldn't just spit in a little tube and mail it off and then have them tell you who your first cousin was and then do the detective work. No, I, I wrote to the, um, to the state of Georgia. It's in the southeastern United States. This is not the country of Georgia. This is the state, and it's where Atlanta is. Um, it's where Dr. Martin Luther King was from, the state of Georgia. And I wrote to that state where my adoption was handled. I was adopted through the Department of Public Welfare, so through the state system, and I asked them for any information which I was legally entitled to. And they sent me this anonymous report, but it was eight single space pages. So it was many hundreds of words, probably a couple of thousand words. And I looked through that and I used the clues almost like a detective and I found out that my biological father was a lawyer. He was an attorney. Um, I, I guess you would say barrister or attorney. He, he was, you know, would practice in court, in the civil court. And, and I learned that he also went to prison. 
So he was a lawyer who went to prison. Now in the US, what we say is many lawyers belong in prison, but few actually go there. <laughs> few actually get sent there. But he was a lawyer whose drinking got so bad that he would forge checks. He would forge his name on his, his, his um, it was his sister's husband. He had a nice firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, they dealt with electrical supplies and commercial, you know, industrial electrical. So he made a lot of money. And so he would forge his name on these checks to steal money from his brother. And his brother-in-law got tired of this and prosecuted him. And the prosecutor said, uh, you can go one of two places. You can either go to the jail and serve your time, or we'll send you to the detox. Well, the detox, Stefan, was in a mental hospital that was the largest mental hospital in the United States. Wow. It had over 10,000 people there. And so people from epileptics to people with profound mental you know, disabilities, developmental disabilities um, were there. People who had um, all manner of mental illnesses from schizophrenia to bipolar disorder, um, and they took the alcoholics and they threw them in with everyone else. <laughs> and they said, well, you just go in there with everybody else. Well, they could dry you out, but there wasn't much for your long-term rehabilitation, you know, to be lumped in there with everybody else who ran everybody from profoundly, you know, catatonic cowering in the corner to people who were just, you know, nuisances and annoyances to their families. Wow. So, Wow. He met my mother there, Stefan. That's the story. Um, she was a nurse and she was profoundly codependent and she could spot, oh, she was going to fix him. She was going to fix this one. So she was a 22-year-old nurse and he was a 34-year-old alcoholic who had been in the Marine Corps in the South Pacific. As a matter of fact, they took R&R &R in Australia took um, a break from the war to go and be treated for malaria in Australia. And then they would go back to the islands to fight. They were island hopping towards Japan in World War II. And he was wounded in action. It probably saved his life. But I think that trauma fueled his addiction to alcohol later on. Mm -hmm. And um, so I found out that through my research and then ultimately found my birth mother who was still alive. Um, and she and I are good friends to this day, as were I and my sister and my brother and I, all three of whom became alcoholics. So that's the story in a nutshell as to how I found my, my biological family and its connection to uh, alcohol addiction. Wow. 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 <laughs> um, that is, that must have been a, a beautiful and, and, hard journey because yes. you you discovered so many humbling things about your dad uh for example his 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 fight in in the pacific uh and you've also discovered so many probably not so nice things but yeah. it it clearly clearly sent you onto the the path of understanding alcoholism and your own background so much more and it is it's intriguing because your story so much brings home that there is a genetic 
predisposition. That doesn't mean to say, oh my God, you have got the genes, uh, or you have got the one gene, there's one alcohol gene. Maybe at this stage, listeners, viewers, there is not one single bad gene. There are a whole number of genetic uh, recordings within your cell cores, uh, which set you up to be a bit more likely to be to to be a super responder with your dopamine and get that kick and get that high um, that that both Stuart and I share here. But the uh, it is we will talk about it shortly that having a genetic predisposition is one thing to then become an alcoholic well that takes a little bit more work um, but many of us are willing to take that job and that's the sad thing mm -hmm. so genetics uh, how much did you did you delve into that um, did you were you happy to be at that stage uh, of your investigative journalism so to speak um, or did you actually get in touch with with uh, people who are uh, geneticists who are uh, involved in research uh, did your did your journey go this way as well well I um, uh, about five years ago um, I began recording interviews um, and I recorded uh, video interviews with my mother with my sister with my brother mm. with my uncles uh, and so I started in the middle, as you often do as a reporter or investigator, you start someplace and you begin to circle out from there. Mm. Or you can start on the outlying edges and move into a, a, a subject. But I wanted to start with my own life and then move out from there. So in the course of that, I would not call myself an expert at all. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm you know, I'm a lay researcher. I'm not a PhD or an MA. I don't have any letters after my name. Um, but I began to read a number of books and I began to pick up the phone and call a number of experts. And I never became an expert. So whatever I say is from my own experience. I have to emphasize that. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they were able to tell me, I, I found a woman in Bangor, Maine, on the northeast coast of the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, actually, she's in a place called Bar Harbor, which is lovely. It's this rocky coast um, in the eastern U.S. on the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, they have a huge laboratory there, a research lab. And she had gotten some funding through the National Institutes of Health to look at this precise issue. And uh, everyone refers to the alcoholism gene. Quite right, there is not one magical gene which we can splice mm. and eradicate alcoholism or alcohol addiction or substance use disorder from the face of the planet. It is much more akin to what is being discovered about schizophrenia. And that is, it seems to be influenced by a number of genes, um, that it's not merely one, and that the disorder itself is not one dimensional. It's, you know, it's mental, it's brain, as well as body. Absolutely. So it's the way the body works as well as the brain. And so I flew up 
to Boston and drove up to Bar Harbor. And I spent two or three hours and I said, take me to kindergarten, take me to, treat me like I'm learning my colors and my letters and I'm learning the, the pairs and the DNA and treat me like I know nothing because I pretty much do know nothing when it has to do with uh, genetics and genomes and, and, and sequencing and codes and you know what these are. And so she took it back and she said, okay, it is a code, but you can't use an electron microscope and find little teeny tiny letters inside of people. This is not like a computer code. Uh, this is not as simple as yes and no. Um, there's a variety of answers and there's billions of possible com combinations because even though you only have these four, um, A, C, G, you know, F, you only have these four primary chemicals. They can be combined in so many different ways that you get so many different messages mm -hmm. from blonde hair to brown hair to whether it's curly to what your nose is, skin pigment. Uh, whether my ears are attached or I can, you know, there's all these different things. And so when it comes to um, how the human body processes ethyl alcohol, it's very, very complicated. And um, so what she did was experiment with mice to attempt to isolate these. And, you know, this is a multi-year process. And it's not as though there's this all of a sudden after six months when your funding runs out, you magically determine what the genes are and then come up with a drug that makes billions and billions of dollars to be able to treat the alcoholic. It's extraordinarily complex. And um, alcoholism is the one illness that if you came up with the magical cure, if you came up with the magic pill, no alcoholic would ever want to take it. <laughs> they're, not, they're not ready for it. They're not prepared for it. So I did learn just a little bit by her sort of walking me through this and by reading books to hmm. try to appreciate the fascinating complexity of this and how it's not as simple as saying, congratulations, Mr. Watson, you have alcoholism. You merely need to follow this regimen and you will never have to worry about <laughs> having this problem again. Because I will say, no, I don't. And we are the ultimate in what they call, I don't know if they say this in New Zealand or in Germany, but non-compliant. Oh, we are yes. the ultimate non-compliant patients. <laughs> no, we're not going to take your regimen. No, we don't. We don't even have this disorder, let alone are we going to, you know, accept your prescription and your treatment regimen. No, oh, no. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you have nailed it, Steer. You've put in the most beautiful words. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so frustrating yeah. because it is uh, it is one of these, these diseases where the main symptom of the disease is that you deny that you have the disease. Yes. So, and that is something that, that will continue. And after all, if you look in, in the American figures of all the people that are drinking dangerously too much, 95% of those do not think they have a problem. So that is, these are the statistics and it's, it's nuts. So it's a nutty disease, which make us as alcoholics take nutty risks, make nutty decisions and throw our lives away. And it's, it's brutal when you watch it from the outside, but somehow 
in our brain, it all makes sense. Because yeah. after all, it's a hard day. We deserve to drink. It was yeah. a good day. Let's celebrate. Uh, it was sort of a la-la day. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a drink and just think back of the good old times? You know, it is just nuts. <laughs> but it is what it is. It's Wednesday. So, no, but then again, so here we are, both of us uh, having the understanding that we are alcoholics. We have the, the, uh, the biology nailed. We admit that we're in trouble. We have actually sought help and that already makes us too quite outstanding because we are now part of a club part of a brother and sisterhood of of very special people pretty broken people um, but people who who pulled themselves together and decided to get up once more than they actually fell down which is the most beautiful beautiful situation to be in <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, dude, you're a human being. That's how you know I'm real. I'm actually. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, not not it. No, you're not a Siri or something like that. <laughs> but that's all cool. So, what do you do nowadays to remain sober? What do you do nowadays, not to remain sober? I think we both are realizing that sober is not necessarily outcome that we want to achieve. Yes, it's, it's, we don't need to drink, that's cool. But that's not what life is about, not to drink. Life is about living the most beautiful days that you can imagine and to try to make yesterday jealous of today because every day you're, you're doing some more beautiful things. And it might sound corny, but that's certainly how I live my life. I, I want to be excited. I want to be infused. And, and I'll take all the right steps to do that. What about you? What, what do you do to, to keep you sane and make you even saner, if there's a word like that? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. You're spot on. It's perfect the perfect question because um, I thought that when uh, I put away the vodka bottle that life was going to be drab, it was going to be glum, it was going to be boring, I was going to become boring, uh, no more laughter, no more sex, no more enjoying food, you know, that I was going to live an ascetic life as a monk somewhere, denying myself of any, anything that remotely resembled pleasure. Yeah. If I put food in my mouth and it tasted good, then I should spit it out because the rest of my life was to deny myself and live in some sort of purity somewhere. And it has been the exact opposite. As what happened was uh, the alcohol was draining the color out of life by the end. It was draining away the music. It was, there wasn't sex. I was passed out. There was, no, there was no sex to be had. I wasn't enjoying my life. You know, I, my life was drained of the color. It was drained of the music. It was drained of the spark. There wasn't laughter. You know, there really wasn't. 
Um, and so the greatest surprise and thrill was that I didn't just, as they say, put the plug in the jug. You know, I didn't, I wasn't just undrunk, you know, that I was, okay, I'm not going to drink today. I'm going to, you know, white knuckle this. Exactly, yes. All I my will. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh, yeah. They, they, and spend all my energy not turning in at the liquor store, not pulling in at the bar, mm -hmm. not going to the beer store, not being at the pub, not hanging around those people, you know, uh, who would get me drunk, you know, not being around the barmaids or whatever. And um, in fact, uh, what they did was they said, we're, we're, there's a wonderful phrase, you may have heard it, that which we resist persists. That which we, if I put all my energy into not doing something, whether it's do not think of a pink elephant, do not think of a pink elephant, then that's all I'm going to do is force my energy toward that. And it's invariably going to lead me back to the liquor store, back to the pub, back to the bar, you know, back to the very place that I'm resisting mm. because I'm, I'm putting all my attention. And so... I'm a believer in 12-step recovery. It worked for me. And if people have other ways that work for them, that's fine. But I'm a big believer in that because what it did was it shifted the focus. And it said, we're going to focus on living a life which is happy, joyous, and free. Happy, joyous, and free. We're going to live a life that's at peace. Um, when you were talking about you could have one glass of wine, two glass of wine, three glass of wine, and then you saw your shoulders relax. You are ready to show up for the party. You are open and available. Well, that had a sound effect for me. The great thing about this wonderful uh, medium that we work in is I can say the sound effect to you and you can hear it half a world away. You can hear it in tomorrow, Stefan. Here's the sound effect. So uh, all of a sudden I'm like, I can't do this, right? I can't bend my elbow. I can't uh, drink some liquid and arrive at <sighs> So how am I ever going to get to <sighs> without having that liquid go down my gullet and into my stomach and into my bloodstream and up to my brain? So how am I going to get to that? You're going to have to give me something, uh, benzodiazepine maybe, uh, to get to the same way that I got to. So what happened? And so I had to have people who had been there. They knew the way, like they were the Sherpas. They're the wayfinders. They're the navigators. And they had to say, dude, we know this. We've been there, okay? We've been down in that hole, all right? We know the way out. So here's what you do. You come sit down here with us and we're gonna tell you what we did. We're not gonna tell you what to do. We're just gonna tell you what we did. Now you can follow us on this path or not, but you know what? I'll tell you stuff and those people were laughing. They were happy. They were relaxed. They were peaceful. They were free. They seemed to enjoy themselves. Um, they, they had plenty of sex. They didn't just pass out. They ate wonderful food. They listened to music. They danced. 
Sometimes they went back to the pub, they still threw darts and shot pool and played billiards. And they talked about the rugby match and they talked about the football game and they went to football and they went to concerts. Mm. They went to see the Rolling Stones and the Who and, and, and they did not drink or eat a bunch of drugs when they were there. And I was like, how do you do that? How do you go to see Pink Floyd and not eat a bunch of hallucinogens? How do you do that? I don't understand. How do you go to the football match and not pound a whole bunch of alcohol and wind up vomiting and fighting? I don't, I don't understand how you do that. And they said, stick with us, mm -hmm. stick with us, and maybe not today, but in a month or a few months, we'll go with you to the football game mm -hmm. and you won't drink and you'll have a better time. And I said, oh, bullshit, bullshit. You're making this up. This is a lie, you know? And I said, but I tell you what, I don't want to be miserable, so I'll stay around you people. And I'll drink your bad coffee in your styrofoam cups, and I'll sit in your folding chairs and your boring meetings, and I'll listen to your stupid stories and your talk about prayer and about spiritual living, and I'll listen to your whole little cult spiel as long as you teach me how not to turn in at the liquor store and kill myself every night, right? And so gradually, slowly, they showed me that happy, joyous, and free is a way of life that I just, after a while, after a few steps, I forgot all about the not drinking part. Mm. And I gradually became more and more interested in, hey, let's talk to Stefan. You know, I've got nothing else. I'm enjoying this. Mm. I get to meet someone who's on the who's from Germany, who winds up in New Zealand at a rehab, you know, you help me, I help you. And that gradually through this series of friendships and connections, you know, social network does not occur when I pick up this thing and go, hey, hey. Social networking occurs when you and I, I look into your eyes, I see you laugh, I see you nod, you know. And that's... That's such a beautiful people thing, isn't on it? The other side of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's pretty people, cool. And people need to realize that essentially, when you, when it comes to the uh, to AA meetings, what we are doing right now, we are doing an AA meeting. Okay, yes. if you wanted to call it like that, two, yeah. two people who talk to each other and and show compassion and connection and brotherhood and we are giving each other the strength to say wow yeah we're doing the right thing and yeah. that is the high five right there here <laughs> exactly here we go there you go there you go well exactly exactly so it is it is the connection and i think that is the key thing if we were to look at at uh, genetics and real life um the the old uh, the old uh, animal experiment where rats were uh, kept pretty much in isolation and were uh, were given heroin in their their water. Yeah, thank you very much. They liked that. And then someone had the idea to actually put a theme park up for rats where they can have a really good time. Yeah. And they then could choose between having water or having water laced with heroin. And surprise, surprise, the rats rather had to water and having a good time, indicating the one big lesson. 
connection, human human being together. And it's, it's the, the polar opposite of being an alcoholic because certainly at the more advanced stage, you're isolating yourself. You are yeah. just, it's, it's all, it's a, it's, a, it's a disease of hiding. It's a disease of, of, of being in your own place and you don't need anyone else. And it's, it's so bizarre. Uh, it is, if you think about it, I just shake my head about the features of alcoholism uh, and but then again realizing what are the signs and symptoms of alcoholism suddenly you actually have got the answer what to do if you want to not drink do the opposite of what the alcohol wants to tell you so go out to a meeting and why meeting because you know, you want to be amongst like-minded people. And there are not too many groups out there that are saying, hey, we are all alcoholics, and but we don't drink anymore. And therefore, if you want to come along. So if you find some group like that, that's not AA, and that works uh, with the same principles to help you and give you the connection and, and uh, not get you drunk and vomiting at the end of the night, then congratulations, you might have found your way. It doesn't need to be AA and it doesn't need to be religious and it doesn't need to be well, whatever as, as long as you're heading for a right life, for a life that you deserve, for a life that you want to celebrate, for a life that on your deathbed you look back and say, wow, that was cool. That was a beautiful ride, at least after, <laughs> after day X, day zero. Um, and that is so important. So I think everyone can do that. I have got the genes. Thank you very much. I tick all the boxes. I'm the super responder. But I have chosen to live a life to the fullest, to the most beautiful extent I can do. And by doing so, I'm showing my two boys what to do. I live by example. I am showing that, yes, this is how you deal with your emotions. This is how you communicate. This is how you connect. And therefore, whilst I for sure have given my boys the genes for alcohol, no doubt about it, uh, they will hopefully also learn the lessons how not to fall into the trap. So guys, if you know that you've got a strong family history, that's really a good thing because at least you've got all the warnings there and you've got all the, the you are pre-warned. You know what will happen if you don't pay attention to getting your act together. And nowadays with, with things like, like our podcasts here and our videos, a video channel, um, with having access to, 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 groups even if you are in isolation or even if you're if you're regionally isolated let's say you live in a small town uh, in the middle of nowhere a farming town well with with now with zoom and with these kind of things you have a chance go out there and make contact uh, connect and say hello to those people that you want to learn from Remember, when you are in a team, you always want to be the most stupidest person in that team. Then you have accumulated a really good team around yourself um, because you want to have the experts around you. 
And trust me, when it comes to alcohol, alcohol tells you, you know it all. Uh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> oh, Stuart. Oh, Stuart. <laughs> I understand. I mm. understand. I'm there with you. What are your, your current interests? What are you doing to, in your own development? What are you planning? Where are you going with podcasts? And well, this, with, is, this, is, with... this is all integrated. It really is. It's all of a piece. Um, that my, uh, you know, when I was out there drinking, I felt like I had the Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde, you know, that it was hard for me to keep it together. You know, the amount of energy it took to keep the guy after five or six o'clock after I quit work to keep that guy, you know, with the guy during the day, a person who had no integrity at night with a person of integrity during the day. Well, now it's fully integrated and they're both one. So um, I left television news uh, five years ago and I left involuntarily and I was very angry about that, you know, that they fired me, they did me wrong. Now I can tell you it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I would just be punching a clock and sitting in a little cubicle like a rat if I were still there. But in the intervening five years, um, I went out and did all these interviews on video, some of them with people who are no longer here, including my sister who died as a young woman. Um, my sister was addicted to five different things over the course of her life. The first was food. The second was smoking cigarettes. The third was alcohol. The fourth was opioids, and the fifth was benzodiazepines, which are the anti-anxiety drugs like clonopin and Ativan. Mm -hmm. And those drugs, including opioids, have a very legitimate purpose. Um, just like alcohol can serve a legitimate purpose in certain circumstances, but for a person with substance use disorder, there's a strong likelihood that some other substances will also be addicted. And for my sister, um, the benzodiazepines, as I understand them, operate on the same receptors as alcohol. And so that means that the brain of a chronic alcoholic, well, when they ingest this solid pill or tablet, um, the brain says, thank God we're drinking again. And so there's a straight line from the use of that substance to the use of alcohol because the brain knows no difference. Yep, and, very much so. Uh, in the instance of my sister, she ended up, you know, drinking alcohol and wrecking her car um, after a doctor unknowingly, he didn't know, it wasn't his fault. Um, it's, I'm not blaming drug makers. They make their drugs for a legitimate purpose, but persons with substance use disorder, we abuse those mm -hmm. um, because they, they operate on these same receptors. They, they do the trick for us. So my sister died a year ago and she died because she had had a gastric bypass and she had all kinds of complications 20 years later. She was five and a half feet and was, I don't know how to translate in kilograms, but 
um, 325 pounds, so she was obese. She wasn't morbidly obese, but she was chronically obese. And I believe that came from uh, her reaction with food, her self-medication with food, after the death of our father. I don't believe she ever, as an eight-year-old little girl, really processed the trauma of the loss of her father. And I don't believe she ever did, you know. And it was very, very difficult. And so all the smoking and the drinking and the food and, 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 opioids, stealing. She was a nurse. She was a registered nurse. And so stealing Demerol, stealing, diverting drugs, stealing and lying about it. The stealing and the lying goes with my disease. And the first person I lie to is myself. And the first person I rob is me. And so um, understanding my sister and her death, well, I had interviewed her and also had videotaped her years before her death. And so I was able to know her. She was a friend of mine and I grieve her loss tremendously. And I also had to be really clear about how the complications from her addiction contributed to her early uh, demise, contributed to her death to this morbidity. Um, and, and that's a terribly sad thing. It really is. Um, and then my brother has had chronic health issues, even though he's four years younger than me. Um, and so he has had repeated relapses. Um, so part of what I did during the time in which I left traditional journalism was to go on this quest, this truth seeking, to try to first document the truth and reach some kind of um, restorative narrative, some sort of resilience and hope uh, based on my own life. To say, as you've alluded to, Stefan, that because you and I have the gene, it is not, or the genes, the genetic pattern, the heredity, it is not a death sentence. It is absolutely not a death sentence. There is hope. There is resilience. There is a restorative, you know, the, the human spirit has a remarkable, remarkable, miraculous capacity for bouncing back. But first, we're gonna have to reach that moment of brokenness and desperation. Um, because there's a, there's a lot of different people who've said the same thing, and that is, it is only through the brokenness that the light shines. Mm -hmm. It may shine from without into our hearts, or it may shine from within our hearts out. Mm -hmm. But whichever way it goes, the light only shines when we are completely broken. Because if we've got it together and we're completely shut down and we're completely, I am not listening to you, I am not open to you, then no light can shine into that. It can't shine out yours, shine in from your heart to mine. I have to be broken. I have to be completely broken. And um, that's what happened to me, is that I was ready and I was receptive. And so I've set about in the last five years to document that journey, to talk about those truths. And now I'm doing it in two ways and soon it will be three and four. The first way was I have a podcast. And I talk to a lot of people in recovery, not exclusively, but a lot of people. And that podcast is called Man Listening. It's one word. And it's there when I'm there to listen to your story, not to just blab on and on like I am, not to tell my story, but to listen to other people in recovery, 
uh, exclusively women, because in New Zealand, you all are smart enough to recognize women as leaders um, on the political scene. Uh, we, need, we need that here in the US. We need to wise up that women and historically female values of listening, of processing things in a certain way, that they have a lot to teach us. Um, just like women have a little bit of testosterone in them and men have a little bit of estrogen in us, we can each learn from each other. And so man listening was a response to the, the phrase mansplaining, which is that I am forever doing that to my wife and trying to explain to her. And she said, you're not very empathic. You're not a very empathic listener. And so I set about to try to change. You know, when I'm 25 years sober, I set about to try to still learn and develop spiritually through that. So the podcast, Man Listening, is about me trying to understand these women one at a time. The important meetings are the one-on-one -on -one connections. So we meet one-on-one -on -one and I record conversations with them and don't try to tell them anything, just try to learn from their stories and their resilience. Then the second thing is a book, which is coming out of that, which will be out in uh, November, I believe. Um, wow. I got the first draft back edited with all the red marks on it yesterday. And that book supports the podcast. <laughs> and the, the name of that book is uh, What She Said and What I Heard. What She Said <laughs> and What I Heard. There's two different things there. Oh, excellent. It's, excellent. It's about all these women in my life who taught me so many different things. And then I hope to go and uh, speak and speak to groups. Um, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but to speak to groups. Hmm. So between the podcast, the book, and the groups, and then hopefully I'll learn from you how to do the videos better, to return to my native medium, which was you know, television and video and making videos of various types, whether it's documentary films hmm. or workshops or uh, tutorials, whatever it is to use the video. And my website, which is manlistening.com, manlistening is one word, uh, it has a video in which in two minutes I try to explain this concept of learning to listen as a man who sets aside his pride, his ego, his narcissism, and, <laughs> and tries to uh, humble himself and, and learn and be taught and be open to being taught. <laughs> oh, hell, you've got a new <laughs> listener, that is for sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll need to binge listen all of your all of your things. If there is uh, one thing I can't do, is understand those women that are closest to me, i.e. my wife. Um, it, is, uh, it is one of these things. Uh, and I think we all men in this world, all men in this world, we are, I think it's the old book, the, the, the title, um, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus in the 80s, 90s. Well, nothing much has changed uh, a generation or two down the line. So I think your your podcast is very timely, and I can't wait for your book to come out. Uh, I'm gonna very much read it, and <laughs> read it and weep. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we shall see. I, I think you'll laugh. You'll be able to uh, laugh at me and with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it will be beautiful. No, it's. Oh, I'm so pleased yeah. for you. I'm very pleased to to and very excited for your for your journey there. Uh, you have got uh, a lot of things uh, going there, and it's wonderful. So, 
Oh, Stuart, it was fantastic to have you uh, on my on my show here. Uh, it was good fun. I uh, loved to, to bounce ideas around and learn from you. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm again very grateful and I'm humbled that you have opened up here to me and to my listeners and viewers uh, because it takes balls. It is one of the most scary things you can do is to actually take that mask off your face and show the real you. And that is what you have done. And it's and what I've seen is a, is a very beautiful you, uh, a very uh, uh, yeah, a very humbling experience for me. And for that, I'm very grateful. Well, I hope uh, that you will come and visit me, or <laughs> I will visit you. And when the world becomes a more sane and stable place, that you and I will see each other not through a screen, we're already connected. <laughs> we're already connected, but I hope that you and I will see each other you know, face to face because I'm grateful to know you. That would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Hopefully soon the world stops being crazy. Although I wouldn't actually hold my breath. Um, right. so I, think I understand. The time being, we need to learn how to use Zoom um, and, and use the, the best microphones and, and videos that we can get and record, well, from the from the convenience of our home, there is something positive to be said out there uh, about that. But yeah, it is what it is. Stuart, it was great to have you on my show. Thank you so much. Look after yourself. Take care. Good to see you, Stefan. Thank and you. you. Bye. <laughs> Dream on, dream on, dream on, dream until you